be a great encouragement to each and every one of us because, like Paul, we live in a world that defies God by false arguments and human rationalizations. You know that. You work with people who have all kinds of intellectual arguments against Christianity. You go to school with them. You may have them in your own family. And this is why they can't believe. They, they can't accept this. Indeed, we do live in a speculative world. How many times have we heard people say things like, I don't believe God would do that, or I believe God is loving and won't send anyone to hell. People have no factual basis for those beliefs, but they believe them nonetheless. All we can do is reply with the truths of Scripture and pray that the Holy Spirit works the same miracle in their minds that He did in ours. Welcome to Verse by Verse. Today, Pastor Steve Kreloff will resume a sermon we began in our last broadcast, and it's part of our present series of studies from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Before we're saved, we're locked in a fortress of lies built by our own minds in concert with satanic influence. Once God frees us from that fortress, it's easy to forget that many of our friends are still prisoners. Our main text is in 2 Corinthians 6. But let's turn first to chapter 10 as the Apostle Paul reveals some of the nature of the battle we fight. Here's Pastor Steve. Beginning in verse 3. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, not meaning, by the way, that he's carnal. He means here by flesh, though, though we walk as human beings. We walk physically. He said, I want you to know that we walk in the flesh. We do not war according to the flesh. We don't use human devices in spiritual warfare. He explains, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not human devices, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, these are tremendously important verses because they reveal to us the true nature of the conflict that that all Christians to to some degree are involved in, but especially Christian leaders and ministers or anybody who has any kind of a ministry involving the word. Paul reveals in verse four that men, he says, have established fortresses and your translations may say strongholds. It's, it's the same same thought. These fortresses, these strongholds have to be destroyed. Now, what is a fortress? What is a a stronghold? Well, the imagery here is that of a a fortress in an ancient city that residents could take refuge in. When they were under attack, they'd just go to the highest part of the the, the city and and go in that fortress. That's, That's what he's talking about. That's the imagery. They had it at Corinth. They had it in every ancient city. Now, he tells us that... um, Individuals, unregenerate man has fortresses, strongholds. What are the fortresses that unbelievers take refuge in? Well, he tells us in verse five. Let me read it again. Right after telling us that uh, we need to destroy fortresses, he tells us in verse five, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What are the fortresses that we have to deal with in warfare? They are speculations. They are thoughts, ideologies, false religious beliefs, rationalizations, philosophical notions, uh, psychological arguments that exalt themselves against the true knowledge of God. 
It's the mind he's talking about. In other words, these fortresses are the proud reasonings and intellectual arguments of unregenerate man that are opposed to the truths of the word of God. That is exactly what Paul is talking about. Philip Hughes, in his excellent commentary on 2 Corinthians, has this to say about what Paul is teaching us here. He writes, the Christian warfare is aimed at the casting down of the reasonings and rationalizations of self-centered man which are the strongholds whereby the unbelieving mind seeks to fortify itself against the truths of human depravity and divine grace, and at the casting down also of every proud bulwark raised up against the knowledge of God. End of quote. See, the, the battle for the souls of men is a battle dealing with thoughts and ideas. That's what it's about. That's the real spiritual warfare today. This is the realm that Satan operates in. He targets our mind. And I, and I think he loves it when people are chasing around demons and trying to cast out demons and send them here and send them there and claiming the blood. Because they're missing the point. They're missing the point. The battle is over the minds of men. The issue is what people are thinking. And the warfare Paul engaged in involved overthrowing and casting down the false arguments of the unsaved, whether they be Jewish legalists or pagan idol worshipers. That's why at the end of verse 5, notice again, Paul states, we are taking, here's his goal in doing all this, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, we, we, uh, are, are in, we counter men's rebellious arguments by winning them and their thoughts to Jesus Christ. Instead of rebelling with rationalizations against the truth, we want to win them and bring those thoughts into captivity to God's divine revelation. Now, how did he do this? How did he do this? Well, that's what he's talking about. He used the weapons God provided for him. This warfare, these are the righteous weapons. Notice verse 4 again. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not human devices. And let me just stop here for a moment and say that Paul did not counter speculative thoughts by using human devices, human arguments, wisdom, clever methods. That is a tremendously important thing that we understand in our day and age because the typical evangelical church today, certainly in the United States, is absolutely impotent to deal with error because they use human devices to try to win people to Christ and to the cause. That's part of the whole problem with user-friendly churches or creating a certain crowd uh, dynamic or bringing in a speaker with great eloquence and charisma, thinking that people will, will relate to that or using psychology to, to, to win people in the arena of their own culture. And let's see how we can, we can be like them and relate to them and have them feel comfortable with us. Paul didn't use any of that. None of that. He wasn't interested in methodologies and church growth techniques and things like that. Paul said he would not use any human device to destroy error. What's the only thing that you meet head on with error? You give them the truth. You give them the truth. That's what he means in verse 4. He said the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We're not using any kind of that stuff. But divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What is the one thing that you can use to destroy speculation and error? You use the truths of God's word. 
That's that's precisely what he's talking about here. He used the only spiritual weapon that can defeat satanic falsehood, and that is the word of God. The righteous weapons that Paul's referring to, as you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the righteous weapons that enable Paul to endure all kinds of conflicts in ministry were the individual truths of Scripture. That's That's what he's talking about. When Paul encountered error... That exalted itself against God's revelation. He used the sword of the spirit, which he tells us in Ephesians 6.17 is the word of God. By the way, the sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6.17 is the only weapon that Paul spoke of that was offensive. Everything else is defensive. A helmet, a breastplate, uh, even the shoes were somewhat defensive. Everything is defensive except the sword of the spirit, which you thrust forth to make a point, to fight folly. This is the weapon God provided for him to use in every difficult situation in which men and women oppose the gospel. Notice the end of verse 7. You'll see the emphasis here is in every difficult situation. It is totally sufficient. He says at the end of verse 7, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left hand. What does he mean? In other words, he was equipped with the word of God to meet error from any direction, whether it came from this direction or from that direction. He was equipped with the word of God which is what Paul taught Timothy when he said in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 that all scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness and then he added that the man of God meaning the man of God who uses the word is completely furnished for every good deed it's sufficient it deals with error it is the righteous weapon let me illustrate it for you from Paul's instruction to Timothy. Second Timothy chapter two. This is great because you, you have Timothy at Ephesus, by the way, uh, dealing with all kinds of errors and errors that are coming from the leaders of the church. And he was a relatively uh, young man. Struggling with with all kinds of things. And Paul is telling him, you got to preach the truth. You got to do this. You got to do that. But he tells him in Second Timothy two. Notice verse, let's begin verse 23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Timothy, don't even get into that stuff. Don't, don't even argue about that, knowing that they produce quarrels. Don't, don't start arguing. Don't start using human opinions to fight that in your own reasonings. Verse 24, he says, the Lord's bondservant, meaning you, Timothy, and every one of us, must not be quarrelsome. We are not to be contentious. We are not to get into debates with people, but be kind to all. Timothy, don't start, don't start fighting people. Be, be kind to those who oppose you. And here's the key. Able to teach. Timothy, be, be apt to teach. You're a teacher. Teach them the word. Patient when wronged. Timothy, don't fight them. Don't argue with them. Don't denounce them. Don't, don't become defensive. Just be patient in teaching them. And how do you teach them? Verse 25, with gentleness, correcting. There's that teaching, correcting those who are in opposition. Just give them the truth, Timothy. It's all you do. Be gentle. Give them the truth. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Because he says, verse 26, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Timothy, they're in the devil's snare. They, they have fortresses of speculative thoughts. They have philosophical arguments. Don't get on their level. Just patiently teach them the truth. Perhaps God will take the truth and give them freedom 
as he enlightens their mind. The, the only thing to do, Timothy, is use the righteous weapon of the word. That's all. That's all. That should be a great encouragement to each and every one of us, because like Paul, we live in a world that defies God by false arguments and human rationalizations. You know that you work with people who have all kinds of intellectual arguments of uh, against Christianity. You go to school with them. You may have them in your own family. And this is why they can't believe they, they can't accept this. How can we free people like that? We're just weak individuals. How can we who are weak free people from such deceptive strongholds? We destroy those ideological fortresses by using the truths of the word of God to win people to Christ and thus make them captive to Christ's lordship. That's what Paul is talking about. Win them to Christ by using the word of God. They counter with this argument. You give them the word. They counter with this argument. You give them that word. They hit you from the left. You have the word. They hit you from the right. You have the word. That's what you do. You're taking every thought, every speculative, nonsensical thought that the world comes up with and you bring the truths of the word of God to bear on that and you teach them what scripture says and hopefully you will bring them to captivity, all their thoughts to captivity, unto captivity to Christ. You see, it's by the truths of scripture that Paul endured. He endured a world filled with arrogant lies. That's how you and I endure. People oppose the gospel. We endure. We meet error with the truths of the Bible. Now, it's up to us to get into the Bible. It's not You're not going to learn it by osmosis. You need to get into the word of God. You need to let the word of God get into you. But this is how we endure. This is how we, we live, as Paul told the Philippians, in a, a, a crooked generation. We're holding firm to the word of truth. We live, folks, in a fallen world. It's not just a fallen world physically. Mentally, it's a fallen world. The unsaved mind is fallen. It can't think clearly. The only reason you and I can think clearly is that if you know Christ, you've been regenerated. But even then, our minds can lead us astray. We need the word of God. We can't think clearly about life and issues and all unless God has revealed to us the truth. So that's how we endure that God's given you a weapon. It is the word of God. So God has provided us with all that we need to endure trials and oppositions as we serve Christ. He's given us, number one, the word of truth, which is the gospel message of salvation. Number two, we endure in the power of God as we proclaim the gospel. God uses it to transform people, to save people. And we have confidence in that. Number three, we endure because we can fight people's arguments with the weapons of righteousness and that would be the individual truths of the word of God, the summation of God's word. Now, this is how Paul lived, and he was a noble warrior. I hope as we've studied this, that your estimation of Paul in the last few weeks has just risen. Uh, Mine has, and I love Paul to begin with, but uh, I have just grown to uh, so appreciate this man as I I don't think I ever have before, and I I think it'd be accurate to call him a noble warrior, a man contending for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. You would think that everybody who knew Paul, everybody had contact with him, would recognize the greatness of this man. This kind has not been seen in our world since Paul. There have been great men, but this was a unique man, a unique man. And you would think that others would recognize his greatness, but they didn't. They didn't recognize it from verses eight through ten. Paul concludes his list of what he endured for Christ by describing another trial 
He gives us a series of contrasts and paradoxes in his own ministry. And the contrast is the way the people perceived Paul to be and act and believe and what he was in reality before God. And what makes this a trial is this. The way people perceived Paul was usually completely false. Completely false. They had the wrong thoughts about him. They had the wrong picture. The wrong viewpoint of Paul. And sometimes they may have had some truth, but not the whole picture. And so it was a distorted perspective of the apostle. So he was misunderstood. There were false perceptions. And yet with 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 all the misunderstandings and all the false perceptions, Paul never wavered in his loyalty to Christ. He endured even when others falsely judged him. So. Uh, in the time remaining, let's let's begin to look at this trial, the trials of being misjudged. And we're going to look at verse eight. There are three uh, contrasts here, and, and these are just enriching to the soul. And we'll give you a greater appreciation for Paul and hopefully will give you great encouragement as you and I endure by people misjudging us. He writes in verse eight, by glory and dishonor. By evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true. Paul introduces this new trial by presenting the various ways that people evaluated him and his ministry. Some had high praise for the apostle, his ministry. Some had only negative things to say about Paul. But this is the paradox of ministry. This is the puzzlement. You are loved deeply by some and you are hated deeply by others. You are correctly evaluated by some and you are completely misjudged by others. Let's see what Paul means by what he writes. He writes, number one, by glory and dishonor. Some held Paul in high esteem, high regard. This is how the word, by, by the way, glory is used here. It doesn't mean that they worshipped him. It just means they appreciated him. He was appreciated. He was admired. Uh, by many for his selfless ministry. And I, I think one of the greatest illustrations of this, let's look at Acts chapter 20. Remember, we, we, we won't have to go through everything in Acts 20, but the setting is this. In Acts chapter 20, Paul had called the elders from the church at Ephesus to meet him in a place called Miletus. And there he explained to the elders that they, they're not going to see him anymore. It's his final charge to them. It's a charge to church leaders. And he said, guys, I've been with you for years. I've poured out my life. I worked hard with these hands, never took any money from you. I taught you day and night. I taught you with tears. I went house to house. I taught Jews. I taught Gentiles. I called people to repent. I called them to faith in Christ. I have given myself to you. And I've got to tell you, he says in in verse 28, he says, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In other words, he's saying, listen, I'm leaving, but I want you to take heed to yourself and take heed to this flock. I've taken care of this flock for some time, but now it's your turn to take care. You've got to do it. And, and I want you to know after I leave, there are going to be men who will come in from uh, outside and they're going to lead the disciples astray. There's going to be some from your own rank. Some of you as elders are going to lead people astray. Make sure you teach them the word of God. And he said in verse 32, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver, no one's gold or clothing. And then he explains that he not only taught them the word of God, he lived an exemplary life before them. But notice verse 36. When he had said this, when he said these things, 
he knelt down and prayed with them all. So this was a, a departure. This is a farewell prayer. And here's their response. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Folks, this is a man deeply loved. These are strong elders in the church. These are the most godly men in this church. And they are falling on their knees and falling over Paul and embracing him and kissing his neck repeatedly. And then they can't, they, they, they want to be with him as much as possible. They accompany him to the boat. This man was deeply loved. This man had uh, people who had deep affection for him. The Philippians certainly loved Paul dearly. They, they gave him, uh, on more than one occasion, financial uh, gifts. Paul wrote them in chapter 4 and said, Nobody else was sensitive to my needs. Nobody was thoughtful like you. I'm not coveting it. I didn't say that I desired it, but it's so kind of you to do this for me. Paul deeply appreciated them. They deeply appreciated him. To the Galatians, it says in Galatians 4.14, that when they had received Paul, the Galatians initially, Paul says, you received me as if I was Christ Jesus himself. Not meaning that they worshipped him, but that you treated me like you would treat Jesus if he came here. And that's not all. The various churches throughout the Mediterranean region recognized Paul as their spiritual leader, their father in the faith. They just loved him for bringing them the gospel. But others loathed Paul. They despised him. Leaders in the Jewish community hated him. They opposed him as a heretic. He was called a heretic. The Roman authorities beat him. They couldn't stand him. False teachers who had come into the churches were his bitter enemies because they were the bitter enemies of Christ. So Paul was both popular and extremely unpopular, a beloved and appreciated apostle and a despised and dishonored man. Yet he says, I endured it all. I endure it all. I've endured it, continuing in ministry as a loyal servant of Christ. And what Paul is doing is saying, doesn't that prove that I live for Christ? I didn't, I didn't live for, for, uh, for you to admire me. I didn't live for personal admiration. I didn't live to be popular. I ministered for Christ. That's all part of ministry. It, it just happens. You don't live for the applause of people. You faithfully serve Christ regardless of how people perceive you. Some will love you. Some will hate you. And ultimately, the only thing that matters is that Christ is pleased with you. We make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. Second Corinthians 5, 9. That really is the bottom line, isn't it? Our goal should be to please Jesus. We are created to glorify God and please Him, and that's how we find our fulfillment. That's also one of the ways we avoid hindering the gospel, which is the topic of this series of lessons on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you were here with us today. Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel is helping us get all we can from the text as we move verse by verse through the sixth chapter of 2 Corinthians. Lakeside is in Clearwater, Florida, and if you'd like to visit sometime, you'd be most welcome. If you already know your way around Clearwater, just head over to 1893 Sunset Point Road. If you need a map, service times, or any other information, go online to lakesidechapel.com. Or you can call the church at 727-441-1714. That's 727-441-1714. Or www.lakesidechapel.com. The other website I want to mention is versebyverseradio.org. 
If you go there and click the message archive link, you'll have access to all of our previous broadcasts right up to the present. This makes it easy to catch up on any programs you might have missed earlier in the series by searching for the particular date you need. Or you might like to just browse for a topic that interests you and download the whole series. While there is no charge for those files, we do have expenses involved in paying for airtime, equipment, and other production costs. If you've been blessed listening to Verse by Verse, would you prayerfully consider a special gift or maybe even regular giving? We are very grateful for the generous listeners who support this ministry with finances as well as prayers. Go to the giving page at versebyverseradio.org for more information or call Lakeside at 727-441-1714. I'm Jerry Peterson. Have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? I'm pretty sure we all have. We usually don't take that very well, do we? It happened to the Apostle Paul a lot. He polarized people. They either loved him or they hated him. How did he handle it when his opponents attacked him? Come back for the next verse by verse and Pastor Kreloff will take us to those verses. 